The Dublin Theatre Festival has been running since the 20th of September, continues through until the 15th of October. Critic Helen Meany has been to see five Irish and three international shows, including work at the Abbey and Gate Theatre. And I'm delighted to have Helen in studio with us this evening. We'll start with the shows that are still running, Helen, because people have a, have a chance to go and see these um, if, if they so wish. And let's begin with the Abbey, main stage on the Abbey, in fact, somewhere out there. You, writer Nancy Harris, director Wayne Jordan, they were in with me, actually, ahead of, I think, towards the end of rehearsals, that nervy time. Uh, it was me in September to talk about this. Romantic love, kind of a, 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 a romantic fiction, uh, kind of are, are put together in this. Uh, in the, it's like a romantic comedy, really, but they're kind of pulling it apart, the genre of romantic comedy, aren't they? Yes, they're, they're, uh, Nancy Harris is really playing with, uh, I suppose, the conventions and, mm. and cliches that we know from rom-com as a, as a genre and having a lot of, of fun with it by uh, I suppose setting up uh, a romance that happens so quickly that it's sort of totally unbelievable, incredible mm. and yet seems to be proceeding um, as as a couple uh, a young woman called in a Dublin family called Casey introduces her new boyfriend, yeah. brand new shiny boyfriend called Brett uh, who seems too good to be true. And when something is too good to be true, it usually is too good to be true. Yeah. And her, her, her divorced parents and her sister and brother-in-law just think, now who is this guy? Yeah. And they, they actually think he might be some sort of escort or a gigolo. Yeah. I and mean, they go to the worst possible. So there are lots yeah, of comic scenarios of, yeah, possible so it here. Opens, opens with their complete disbelief uh, yeah. about this. about this, And it's, you know, he's moved in with her. Next thing they're, he's proposed, they're getting married about two weeks after they met, you know. So it's all of this, it's, it's all happening at high speed. Um, and of course, we, mm. we, we in the audience begin to find out more about this character, the Brett. The reality about yeah. it. And I suppose that that's, that's the fun and the kind of serious side of what's at, at play here as well. 13 actors on stage. That's a large cast these days. And it's one of the things that struck me about a couple of plays I read ahead of the festival this year. That they were plays with big casts and, you know, interactions between more than one or two people on stage at a time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, you, you know, using the Abbey stage, it's it's directed by Wayne Jordan, who, you know, has a great sense of theatricality and using the space mm. and, and fun and glitz. Um, and there's a lot of playfulness in the beginning. It takes a while. It takes a while for us to get mm. to the truth of the characters, and the conceit really is that we can invent, we can invent our own romance. We can be whoever we want. We can pay someone to to yeah. pos- possibly be our lover yes. if, if that's the. If that's what and it's we... playing with the idea of role play and being an actor, and you know, and and all of and that. And you say it takes a while to get to where it's going. Does it hold you for that? Is it worth um, putting it on your to see list? It, look, it's a lot of fun and it's a clever conceit, but it takes too long, I thought, to mm. actually to the the payoff of the of the elaborate uh, kind of plot plot device and reversal takes a long time, and it it's a quite while. a baggy script. I think yeah. I think it could be just tightened and it would be a lot better because right. there are some some great comic moments in it, and it's very it's a very clever observation, you know, about fantasy yeah. and and the fiction of romance. Let's move on to the loved ones uh, again, uh, a play. But this one, not a, not on as quite a broad a canvas, I suppose, as somewhere out there you somewhere out there you that we've been speaking about. The loved ones is a much smaller cast. 
but it's it's a it's it's a kind of a locker room type of feel to it in many ways. This is a pressure point. What's the setup here? The setup is yes. How how do we bring four people into mm. into a room where they can can can't really escape from each other? Yeah. Um, it's slightly contrived, but it's it gets four, four characters into a remote cottage in County Clare because because uh, a man who is the son of the lead character Nell, played by Jane Brennan, has died suddenly in London. Um, so she is grieving. There's a knock on her door and a very young woman, a student from London, arrives and she's pregnant. Yeah. And she says that the baby is Nell's son, Robin's, that he's yeah. the father. And there are confusions here because Nell's, uh, uh, the son's wife, is on the way to visit as yes, well. carrying his ashes yeah. in a jar. Yeah. So his widow. And so there's the, f- the, uh, the opening is very much classic you know, don't tell, don't yeah. tell the daughter-in-law about, you know, so it's yes. kind of farcical in a way. Yeah, so that, um, that that kind of pressure is on it all the time to keep the information that, that we as an audience know from the other characters yeah, on so stage. Yeah, so the, the comedy yeah. comes from the, us in the audience, us knowing more than the characters yeah. do. And I must say, when I read the script, I, I, I thought there was great fun in the script. I haven't seen it realised on stage, but there's quite a cast here. Yeah, the cast is very strong, cast of four, and, but actually it's Jane Brennan's performance. Who's the mother it, character She's here. the mother now and she's just dry. She's grieving, but she's got this dry humour, um, very self-contained, almost stoic character who brought up her son mm. as a single mother in the 80s. So she's, she's a, a strong, tough person, but she's utterly floored. Yeah. I, I think the heart of this is that they don't know this man. They think yes. they knew who their husband was, who their son was, this guy Robin, yeah. and they have no idea now after his death who he actually was. And obviously there's a lot of comedy to be got from the particulars of the situation trying to keep the information from the wife uh, the elegant widow played by Grania Keenan, yes. Gabby who's the young woman played by Fanta Barry and Jane Brennan as Nell and who's the fourth? Helen Norton, Helen Norton is, yes. is, a, is an Airbnb an American who kind of wanders in and she's yeah. utterly clueless and she, and she basically let, lets the yeah. cat out of the bag and she has her own sadness. So it, yeah. actually, it, it is an exploration of grief. And, and it, it did strike me. It's very funny in places. But I wondered, is there a serious undertow in the play? And is that is that played out on stage or is it the comedy that we get? Essentially? We get a lot of comedy in the beginning and then it takes, it takes uh, I suppose, a more serious turn. It also mm. really slows down and it com- becomes a bit soap opera-ish in its sort of revelations and its treatment of quite important themes about uh, fertility and miscarriage. Mm the nature of motherhood, all those things. And it's tied up in a bit of a bow at the yeah. end. I felt I felt the end is a bit too fuzzy and, and uh, I, it really tails off, starts very yeah. well. But it is an extremely old fashioned, traditional kind of play. Yeah, and, and, um, and I must say in that respect, I thought there was a lot of potential in Annika Murray's writing here that there's, there, there's better, there's more to come. But more to come, I would think. And, yeah. and maybe um, in a less, uh, in a different kind, yeah. different style of production. Okay. Let us move on then to, uh, that. that's, uh, what's it called? It's the Loved Ones at the Gate Theatre. Ironbound is still on at the Peacock Play, first produced by the legendary Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago in 2014. Pulitzer winning playwright is the is the author here. Who are we talking about? What's the setup, Helen? Uh, her name is Martina Majoc and she's a really interesting writer. It's uh, it's set in, it, the, the time span is the early 90s uh, to 
2014-15 in New Jersey. Mm. And it's the story of a Polish, a young woman, a Polish immigrant and what happens to her really against the backdrop of factory closures. And, and, and she comes to America full of hope and she finds that it, she's mm. really no better off than she was. And is that really shining a light on the immigrant experience in America or, or in generally in the, in the world? And, and when, you have a very player powerful. Like, when you have a player like that speaking to that situation somewhere else, does it speak directly to our experience of uh, emigration and immigration in this country? Emigration and immigration, given that so many people mm. moved to people moved to Ireland around that same time. Um, it's also actually an honour written to to kind of memorialise or to remember, I should say, the experience of the writer's mm. mother. So it's very ah, right. close. It, it has a real sense of authenticity. It's brilliantly performed. The, the main character, Daria, by, by Olga Fedori, who's a Ukrainian mm. actress, and she's wonderful. Also, And that must Ingesund have an, ad, an, added, reson- yeah, an added resonance to it. It does. Yeah. It does. And it, it just feels really tight, really well directed by Aoife Spilanhinks. OK, uh, so that a, one's... I, it, I, it had a, I thought it was very, very uh, strong. And All right. So that affecting that 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 one worked very well for you and um, we spoke to Mark O'Connell I think around the time of um, to be a machine version 1.0 and indeed 2.0 um, it's, so 1.0 was a version of his 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 book which is all about artificial intelligence, etc., and the possibility of what do they call it? Trans- a transhumanism. Transhumanism. Yeah. Thank Extending, you. Extending uh, the consciousness beyond the death of Using, the body. Yeah. Really fascinating stuff. And the book is full of quirky and strange uh, millionaires. Uh, how is it realised on stage? And this is a slightly bigger version than the lockdown version, I think. It's really, it's really quite different, actually. So this is this is going off in a different direction using a, a virtual reality headsets. Mm. So it's almost the opposite of the first one, whereas in the first First one, we were projected into an auditorium, our faces. Yeah. This one, we are in our own heads watching a performance uh, on virtual reality. So With everybody else watching the same performance the same, on their you mask? You don't know that, but one assumes so, yeah. No, they are. I mean, so they do are. you have a sense of, of being in a community of theatre goers when you're in your own little virtual well, reality this mask? is the, exactly the question they're trying to explore. So that what, you're, what we're seeing on our headset is a presentation of a theatre mm. with Jack Leeson uh, coming on stage. And then we then we actually become Jack Leeson and we're, we're following him through the streets of Dublin. So we're in our own, mm. we're on our own kind of Ulyssian odyssey through Temple Bar and, and through his eyes. Yeah. So it's a complete reversal. Um, I the, found it fascinating. Yeah, and that that's still running at, at the uh, Peacock. And one that I've heard a lot of talk about was um, six characters in search of sanctuary in a Quaker meeting room. This is a, 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 the play Quake by Quake. Janet Moore, who we know as an actor, yeah. but here she is as a writer as well. She's a writer, she's a director, she's just, just one yeah, of these extraordinarily talented people. Janet Moran and yeah this this is a beautifully staged piece really um, artfully done with most gorgeous design mm. uh, by Paul Kogan uh, and, and the soundscape by Dennis Clohessy directed by Colin Morrison so it's all about creating a tone it's mm. almost like a meditation um, we move through five, uh, four seasons um, with a small group of people in a Quaker meeting house and they're they're thinking and talking about their life problems. They're full of regrets about how to be a parent, about, you know, dementia, encroaching, illness. Yeah. It's gentle. But, uh, the, it's a bit too gentle, I think. All oh, right, was it a little too gentle for you? But it, it, I did hear very strong reports about it. Do you think it is a potential to come back? Is it one of those shows that we might see again? I think so, because it's very universal in its themes. And you, you sort of go into a meditative yeah. state while watching it. It's, ah. a, it's a beautiful piece, but it lacks, I don't know, it lacks a little bit of All drama right. or conflict. And All I right. thought at the end, 
it tended to a little bit towards sentimentality for my taste. Maybe you'd give me one of your big international highlights. Yes, she was a friend of someone else, a uh, Polish play, uh, very current about uh, women's rights and um, particularly for abortion in Poland with the election gen- mm. election there coming up. Very, It's a very, very divisive issue and beautifully presented piece by Gosia Widok uh, from Naui Theatre and Campo in Belgium. I've, I was one of the very interesting use of video and documentary techniques, I, but also choreography and live performance. Yeah. And documentary technique, I think, was part of several of the international shows in particular, was it? Yeah. Did you have you been having a good festival? Absolutely so far? great so far. Yes, okay, and well, I'm looking forward to Junk Ensemble on Friday. Yeah, that's where you're heading on Friday. Yes, a few more is. days to go. That's Dublin Theatre Festival continues through until Sunday, the 15th of October. Details at dublintheatrefestival.ie. The Loved Ones is at the gate through until the 21st of October. Gatesiatre.ie for details. There somewhere out there, you is at the Abbey until the 4th of November. Ironbound is at the Peacock Theatre until the 11th of November. For details about both productions on abbeytheatre.ie and thanks to Helen Meany for speaking to us about all of those this evening. Founded in 1959 by Garrick de Bruyne, Clada Records was one of the most important players in the revival of Irish traditional music in the 1960s and 70s. Clada Records itself became home to some of the great legends of Irish music. Pipers Leo Rosam and Liam O'Flynn, legendary fiddler Tommy Potts, singer Dolores Keane, poets Seamus Heaney and John Montague and many, many others. Now, the Clado Records legacy is celebrated in the form of a new hardback book and vinyl record. It's called Real Real to Real, uh, Garrick Brown and Clado Records and it is written by James Morrissey or put together, compiled by James Morrissey, good friend of Garrick de Bruins, who I'll be speaking to in just a few moments' time. First of all, let's have a blast of one of the great signings to the young Clado Records, signed in 1964, in fact, a little while after Clado itself was formed. Here are the Chieftains with the opening track from their fourth album. This is Drowsy Maggie. There we go, a little taste there of the Chieftains and Drowsy Maggie, as I said. That comes from their 1973 album, The Chieftains 4, fourth release on the Clada label, in fact. An album, uh, that album and the band testify the importance of, of Clado Records in documenting uh, the revival of Irish folk and traditional music. However, James Morrissey is the compiler, the author, the putter together of a great tome that I have in front of me right now, Real to Real, Garrick Brown and Clado Records. It looks back at, uh, and it celebrates the history of Clado Records and its unique founder, Garrick the Brown, or Garrick the Brune, as I call him more often than than actually Brown, I, I think, James. Um, it's when when you hear that that young chieftain sound that the fourth album that they released on the on the on the Clado label and Clado was well established at this age, you realise that Clado really was at the cutting edge of a revival and an interest in Irish music in the sixties and seventies. I think very much so, uh, but also worth noting that um, pop music was coming across the Atlantic. Uh, you had Elvis Presley and all the American uh, stars. Then you had from across the Irish Sea, you had a lot of the pop groups. So you had hmm. Radio Aaron, uh and you had Radio Luxembourg and the, the competing uh, audiences and younger people not being as interested. And I think Garrett felt, certainly in the late 1950s, that Irish music was in decline 
and he was told as much by, by Erskine Childress, later president, he said, what are you doing recording this music which sounds like squealing pigs? Should you not look forward to the new Ireland? And Gareth said, no, I want to persist with this. And Gareth was, was very, he wanted to be protective of something that he thought might be lost. And yeah. I think it's fair to say, you know, he, he was not the only one. You had Gwailin doing great work. You had this organisation doing work, great yeah. work. Seamus Ennis doing great work for Radio Air and Kieran McMahuna, Prunchy Sakunlun. And mm. the archives are there to this day. Uh, and we hear them from time to time on various programmes and John Bowman's programme. Yeah, but it's it's interesting that you say that the the, the future president Erskine Childers said, you know, oh, we 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 want the new Ireland. In fact, the music that was established then in the sixties and seventies really became part of the new Ireland that established itself throughout the eighties and nineties. That's that's absolutely right. And again, in this in in the spoken word, you had emerging poets. You know, mm. uh, at that stage he was he was getting on in years, but you had uh, Patrick Kavanagh, yeah, uh, recorded in uh, in the mid nineteen sixties by Garth Brown, and a, a very interesting vignette: Patrick Kavanagh in the Bailey sipping whatever he was sipping, and in came a young up and coming poet by the name of. Seamus Heaney and they only met once and that was in that was in the Bailey and that was about three months before Patrick Kavanagh died. Wow. And and also John Montague is, is very much was very much part of the Clada story. He was very friendly he was and, and involved in the early days of Clada, very friendly with Gareth. Very much so. It would have been um Ivor Ivor Brown, uh Garrett Brown, uh both pupils of Leo Rossum, uh who later taught Liam O'Flynn and and Paddy Maloney. But they were the first two. John Montague was very keen that the spoken word would become part of what 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 Clada was about. Um, Dolly McMahon made the comment that of the people involved in Clada uh, that Garrett hadn't a clue in relation to business. <laughs> Dolly uh, McMahon being the great singer, she's she's part of the album, part of is, the company, yes. and of course the wife of, of the Kieran late Kieran McMahon. And she said that uh, Garrett didn't have much of a clue. Ivor Kenny had less of a clue about business. <laughs> the only person with any kind of sense at all in relation to how things should be managed was pa- Paddy Maloney, who actually was a, a yeah. manager in Clada Records in the early years. Yeah, I've, I've often heard that spoken about in the uh, in the early days of the Chieftains too and even later into the days of that the Paddy was the one with the business head. He'd always get that side of, of things sorted out. But, you know, we're talking away about Garrick, Garrick Brown or Garrick the Brun as I still kind of feel I should call him in my head. And I'm looking at a, a, the, one of the pieces at the beginning of chapter one of the book and it's a beautiful book full of pictures, all sorts of archive material in there. And the quote is, I can remember dancing to Irish music at around the age of three. It's one of my earliest and most vivid memories. It's important. This is in Lugalaw. It's important to remember the family background here. That is correct. And he spent his early years growing up in Castle McGarrett outside Clare Morris. Um, and uh, he loved when he heard Irish music and there were workmen around mm. who were whistling tunes and singing tunes. And Garrett would say that he was a we should explain like the workmen on the Guinness estate that's what we're talking about here we're talking about the workmen on the Guinness estate and one in particular Garrett said uh, whistled some wonderful tunes he said Garrett's father wasn't that keen on this particular gentleman because he didn't work very hard and when he wanted a break during Mm. the summer months he went up onto the roof and and put a hammer into a few tiles and he could Garrett could hear him whistling and he'd wait for him to come down from the ladder 
the ladder and he would follow him around the place. And then you had Kieran McMahon. But Garrett also made a very interesting point before he died that you had these pockets of music and the spoken word. And mm. it was very different in Kerry to what it was in Clare, was very different in Mayo to what it was in Galway yeah. uh, or Donegal. And he felt that, again, his his job was really to bring the different interpretations to different tunes and bring them all together and, and let them be reinterpreted yeah. in whatever way they were going to be. And as you say, spoken word was a was a very important part of what Garrick was doing here and John Montague involved in the in the early days of finding uh, of Clara Records in that respect. Let's have a listen to a wonderful poem. And this again is on the accompanying there's a, 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 a the Clada collection, Master of, Masters of Their Craft is the accompanying vinyl LP that comes with this uh, wonderful book that you've put together for us, James. Let's have a listen uh, to um, John Montague and the, here he is speaking or saying the poem Lugalaw for us. Lugalaw for Gareth Brown. Again, again in dream I return to that shore. There's a wind rising, a gull is trying to skim over the pines, and the waves whisper and strike along the bright sickle of the little strand. Shoving through reeds and rushes, leaping over a bog-brown stream, I approach the temple by the water's edge, death's shrine, cornerstone of your sadness. I stand inside by one of the pillars of the mausoleum and watch the water and the stone basin. As the wind ruffles cease, a calm surface appears like a mirror or crystal. And into it your face rises, sad beyond speech, sad with an acceptance of blind, implacable process. For by this grey temple are three tombs, a baby brother, a half-sister, and a grown brother killed at twenty-one. Their monuments of Wicklow granite are as natural here as the scattered rocks. But there is no promise of resurrection, only the ultimate silence of the place, the shale-littered face of the scree, the dark, dark waters of the glacial lake. And there you go. That's John Montague reading his poem, Lugalaw. One of the pieces that features on the Clad Collection, Masters of the Craft, which is the LP that accompanies the vinyl LP that accompanies the book we're speaking about this evening, uh, which is the, the story of uh, Clara Records, Real to Real, Garrett Brown and Clara Records. James Morrissey, who put the book together, is, is with me in studio this evening. And in the midst of that, there is that great sadness at the back of the family and the two younger deaths, the two younger gravestones are there. And the, the, the man that they're speaking about who was killed in the car accident, of course, is Tara de Bruyne, who was... They heard we heard I read the news today mm, yes. Um the the Beatles song. He, he was the inspiration, if that's the right word for that. He was. And uh, Tara was several years younger than than Garrett. And he he chose maybe a more conventional route through life mm. than Garrett and that he went to London. He was part of that set in London in Carnaby Street. Uh, he was with Paul McCartney. Uh, um, and I think Brian Jones hmm. several evenings before the, the the car crash, which was in 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 December. And Garrett never, I think, he he was very stoic, but I think he never really recovered from the death of his younger brother. Uh, it brought him an enormous sadness, and in sitting with him in Lugalaw, 
talking about Tara uh, was particularly painful for him, although he wanted to be asked questions uh, about Tara. And and Gareth was thrilled mm. when when Paul Howard decided uh, that Tara deserved a book in himself. Gareth yeah. really felt that that, and I think after Tara died, that Gareth wanted to surround himself with people that he could trust <clears throat> and that he could immerse himself, uh, indulge himself and maybe lose himself mm. in this crusade, which was Clatter Records. And that's interesting that that would have been part of the way of dealing with the death, the death of his brother, the Clatter Records was in some ways an outlet for that. But the, the focus was always on um, traditional Irish music, uh, very much so. How good a piper, I was asking you this as we were listening to the poem, how good a piper was Garrick de Bruyne? Because there are pictures in the in the book of him playing pipes at certain points along the way. Well, he never recorded himself, which probably tells you something. I would have asked him how accomplished a, a piper he was and he would just stare at me, which was really <laughs> saying, you're asking me to admit that I wasn't a great piper. He had wonderful, he was very self-deprecating. I think he, I think he was more the conductor of an orchestra yeah. than he was a performer in that orchestra. In other words, and he went for excellence in everything, excellence in recording uh, studios, excellence, excellence in producers, excellence in sleeve notes, excellence in sleeve design. Eddie Delaney, sculptor designing yeah. uh, the first batch of Chieftain's albums, using people like Labrocki, Yeats the painter, uh, Catherine Falath, he went for excellence both in the sleeve notes or in sleeve notes, the design and the content. Yeah, well, funny you should say about um, the sleeve notes and the design. There's a wonderful poster that's part of this package as well, which is kind of like a Louis Lebrocke head in some ways. It's Garrick's head is in there behind, but it's essentially made up of tiny pixels that are they're like pixels that that um, are the album covers that that Clada they're made up for the, the, the totality yeah. of just the, the the album covers and again we try to imagine mm. this in a way in which Gareth would 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 accept now he was completely against totally against compilation albums so uh, yeah. I hope he forgives us for what we've done here. Uh, he <laughs> uh, he would, but he was involved with you. I mean, he he died was in March uh, twenty eighteen. So he he was aware of the project that that you were working on and you were had been working on it together. Yes, for about four or five years. And he, you know, he'd often ask, "Do you think this will work?" Mm. Uh, and I'd say, it, "Of course, it's going to work." I think he believed that it wasn't going to work. I think he believed there was a hex on it. I think he, he he wanted to believe it could happen. But I think he was used to in life being let down, being sad. And I don't think he looked at things yeah. in those latter years with the optimism. And I think that that, you know, kind of this book fueled him, fire, fired yeah. him up, as did, the, as did the thoughts of the revival of the label. Yeah, and I'll, I'll come back to the revival of the label, but I, I, I want to go back to the very beginning. We mentioned Garrick and his piping and the fact that he said, well, no, don't be, don't be asking me to say what kind of piper I am. But I suppose if you were sitting, listening to the likes of Leo Rolson playing pipes, you might be forgiven for thinking you were pretty mediocre, no matter how good you were. That was the very first album, wasn't it, that uh, Clad had produced, King of the Pipers, uh, by Leo Rosam, who taught Ivor Brown, in fact. And let's listen to a track from that album, which is part of this compilation as well, The Fox Chase. <laughs> 
That's the wonderful Leo Rosam on pipes there with a tune called The Fox Chase. And I was saying to James Morris, that's part of the Masters of Their Craft Clada Collection album that accompanies the book we're talking about, Reel to Reel, Garrick Brown and Clada Records. I was saying to James Morrissey as we were listening to that, all five of them, <laughs> in fact, that it sounds like four or five players. It doesn't sound like one player at all. An orchestra, an orchestra of one. And yeah. Leo would travel around with Garrett. Garrett, as well as not being a great musician, was not a great driver. Mm. And he sometimes would drive very, very fast. And Leo Rosen would be in the passenger seat. And if Garrett was going too fast, Leo would play a very slow. A slow air. <laughs> and if he, was, if he was going too slow and, and yeah. forgetting about time, Leo would, would speed it up. So yeah. they, had, they had a great nod. And to be fair to Garrett, every Christmas he would send the Rolls Royce to Donny Carney to pick up Leo Rossum and his wife and his children and take them down for a Christmas dinner down in Lugalaw. Down in Lugalaw, yeah. And there's some visitors to that place as well. Um, some amazing contributors to the book. I mean, President Michael D. Higgins is in there. Bono uh, gives into it as well. But you men- mentioned, James, about the revival of the label, which has happened, I think, in a deal that has been signed with Universal, isn't it? Yes. In, in recent times. And some great young acts mm. In, that are part of the current revival of traditional music, part of that, part, part of the Clatter Stable now. Yes, we were very keen that this would not be just shining a light on the past mm. and this would not be for a particular audience or demographic group. It had to follow through with signing new artists. And Neve Berry is one of our first signings, and she's a wonderful artist. Yeah, wonderful with great, great promise. In fact, Neve Berry will be part of. We have a public interview with writer Claire Keegan next Tuesday in in the Pavilion Theatre in Dulera, and Neve is going to be our musical performer on the evening. But there are other people in there as well. Um, a new band, OXN, is it? Is how we said featuring Rady Pete from Lancome, Katie Kim and John Spud Murphy Junior. Brother is part of the label as well. Ye Vagabonds. Mm-hmm. So it really is looking forward to the to the future as well as looking. Looking back to the, uh, the glorious past, as it, as 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 it should, it, sh- it this should be about our future as well as as well as mm-hmm. shining a light on the great people, not just Garrett Brown, yeah. who did an awful lot to preserve our heritage. Well, listen, thanks for coming in and speaking to us about it. That's James Morrissey, chairman of Clara Records and author of the new anthology of the label Real to Real, Garrick Brown and Clara Records. It's a hardback book, the large poster that I uh, described and a wonderful vinyl record in there as well. You can find full details by going to the website cladarecords.com. Lessons in Chemistry is a new Apple TV series. It starts this Friday. It's based on Bunny Garmus' novel of the same name. Set in 1960s America, it follows the life of Elizabeth Zott, played by Brie Larson, who is fired from her job as a lab scientist. Afterwards, she uses her new job hosting a cooking show, Supper at Six, to educate housewives on scientific topics and it's about scientific topics. It's important to say that. It's not just how to cook. Um, Jen Gannon has watched it and joins me now. And there's nothing wrong with just cooking. Let me be clear of about course. that. Of course. And she makes that clear oh, all yeah. the time. It, She's like, but, you know, cooking is important work. And, you know, they're not appreciated. The mothers at home at that time mm. are not appreciated for what they do and how they make things go from something very small with the ingredients and stretch it over a week. And how they, you know, the value and love that's put into food. And also, like... 
it's like it is a chemistry to her because it's about putting things together yeah. and making more of it and that structure and the peace that she finds in that kind of rigid, rigidity yeah. of like, you know, food and chemistry. Together. And in fact, when we first meet her, she is hosting this television show, mm. but we get, even from the opening sequence, we get the, um, 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 uh, I think, the impression this is not a person to be messed with mm. in any shape or form. And she's told going in, right, we have a new sponsor. Are you going to are you gonna push the new sponsor? <laughs> so she goes on set with the new sponsor's tins of soup right beside her. And here is what she does. Welcome, viewers. My name is Elizabeth Zott. And this is Supper at Six. See this? Presto soups. Cook so quick, it's done in a presto. It's my line. It is a real time saver. And that's because it's full of chemicals. And not the good kind. Hmm? There will be a surprise indeed. Feed enough of it to your loved ones and they'll die off. Saving you tons of time because you won't have to feed them anymore. Today, we will be making a fan favorite, lasagna, but we will be testing a new variable. Caring for loved ones takes work, real work. Anyone who tells you differently does not cook dinner for a family of five every night. So let's make something hearty. Let's make something delicious. Let's make something that keeps our family alive and gives us leftovers for a week. Let's get started, shall we? That's Brie Larson in the opening scene there of Lessons in Chemistry. And there she is hosting a kind of classic, Jen Gannon has been watching this for us, a kind of classic 1950s, 60s style mm. show. She's got the big beehive hairstyle. She's absolutely perfect looking on camera. But she is not to be messed with. She will say what she wants when she wants. Mm. And that's, you know, we've seen that. This mm. is a familiar trope now in a lot of TV shows. You know, you've had everybody from, we've had five seasons of like Mrs. Maisel, mm. you know, turning the punchline against, you know, male comics and <coughs> taking aim at the patriarchy. You've had the same with Beth Harmon in The Queen's Gambit on the chessboard, you know. Yeah. And you've also obviously had, you know, Peggy Olsen, the er woman of Mad Men, yeah. you know, copywriter turned modern woman. And I don't think there's a better TV character, I think, than, than Peggy Olsen. And this is in the same frame as in... Yeah, because I think if, if you think of the ad- advertising world, it's very, uh, mm. obviously, it was quite a macho place. And the world of science in the f- 60s and 70s, 60s, certainly was male dominated. Exactly. No question and you're, about you're that. watching her career pivot from being a wannabe pioneering scientist, but mm. not allowing to be able to express herself in yeah. that world. She is working at the start in this Hastings Research Institute and she's basically a lab bunny where she goes and, you know, makes the male scientists their coffee and she cleans their beakers. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, she is more intelligent than all of them put together and she is supposed to be a lab technician, but they don't take her yeah, seriously Yeah, well, even that's shown very quickly where she's, she's told to just go for forward for the Miss Hastings pageant. She yes. has no interest in like, that whatsoever. Rather than encourage her to go forward and you know to apply for research grants Mm. they're actually pushing her into this beauty pageant within the institute as well so right from the jump you know it is saturated in sexism and a lot of that you know it it is kind of very obvious sexism as in there's nothing subtle about this show it's as subtle as a sledgehammer when it wants to get the points across she's called darling all the time Mm. and sweetheart would you ever make me a cup of coffee and all that's like right across it enter (laughs) (laughs) enter a very 
handsome and debonair and intelligent. Man. He's Dr. perfect. Calvin Kinda. Evans, and he's played by Lewis Pullman, who actually looks like this man has dropped in from the 1950s. He looks like he's straight off the set of Guys and Dolls. He looks like he's never heard of email in his life. He has not got a modern face. I don't know where they found him, <laughs> but he's really, you know, perfect for this role. And so he ends up, he is, you know, doesn't believe, he blindly doesn't believe in sexism or, or, or racism of the times because he is this pure intellectual and he wants to work with her. He, he figures out mm. how clever that Zot is and wants to work together. And it kind of melts that very austere shield that she has yeah, against I mean, the world. Yeah, I mean, you can see that coming a, a, a mile off. But it, early on in, in the series, she steals some, is it rhizome that she mm. steals from his lab? Yes. And he said, you know, a secretary shouldn't be anywhere near my lab. And she corrects him. Yeah, um, to say to I'm, point not. Out, I'm, I'm not. Not a secretary, so you know that that's that augurs well for what might happen a little bit later on. And then he's all chaos and yeah. jazz, and she's all you know. He listens to jazz. He's all about the chaos theory. She's all about yeah. regimented safety and logic. And they're the perfect odd couple, obviously. And yeah. that's when you know the show is kind of at its best in that way when it rattles through their relationship and it has a lot of familiarity for yeah, people, well, let's, I think. Let, let's listen to a, a scene between the two of them, Calvin Elvis, Lewis Pullman, as you say. Um, he feels unwell at work or, and he, he, she, she rescues him, mm. basically. She's, he's the, the, the man the in distress. In distress. And, and he, <laughs> she is the, the shining knight in armour and she brings him home and there and then he apologises for the way he behaved uh, the previous few days. I, I just, I want to apologize once more for the other day. That I was can't up. accept your apology. I, I would like to, but you don't know what you're apologizing for, and so the entire exercise is meaningless. Yes, I did borrow some of your ribose, some of a very plentiful supply, if I might add, but you have all of the resources and the rapt attention of the entire scientific community, and you take it for granted. You must be intelligent based upon your myriad of accomplishments, but you walk around like a, like a like a paranoid, ungrateful, fragile man. So to respond to your comment earlier, I don't hate you. I just, I don't like you. Thank you. Come on, uh, I have something for you. It's the only reason I came to the party tonight. To bring me ribose. You have your master's in chemistry. I do. You didn't want to pursue a PhD. It was a complicated situation. I'm sorry you didn't get to finish the competition. No, no, I'm not. What about the cash prize? Blood money. There you go. And you can feel this chemistry starting, can't you, between <laughs> Lewis Pullman playing Calvin Evans and Brie Larson playing Elizabeth Zott in a scene there from Lessons in Chemistry. I have to say, you know, kind of write, write themselves. Some of the reviews for this will be, mm. is there chemistry between the two of them? <laughs> when they start talking about science, it is... The, mo- yeah, it, the the uh, the subtext is so erotic. Yes. You know, they're talking about atoms and molecules protons and molecules, and and you, off each other. And, <laughs> and you think, you know, we know exactly what they're talking about. It's nothing got to do with chemistry, even though it is. Mm. Oh, completely. But the the only thing I will say is that sometimes I would like if a scientist in a film or a, a book or a TV show would actually talk like a normal person, a normal human. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with the Elizabeth Zott character, she can sometimes just slip into that 
it's like she's reciting Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory's rejected kind of lines, which can be irritating because you want a broad and an edit of the yeah. character. But I will will say, as it move on, moves on, the character does deepen and yeah. you get it into who she actually was. And there are two things here because there's a big backstory um, there around is. that and we don't need to we go anywhere want, near won't it. won't get into any spoilers. Uh, there are two <laughs> things I want to touch on before we finish up. Harriet Sloan is, because this is based on the novel as I said, but Harriet Sloan is a kind of, a, is she a new character she, or certainly a, a more developed character than she was in the novel? A lot more developed and I, I welcome that and I think the performance by Aja Naomi King is great. Like in the book, Sloan was a bit of a nosy neighbour just spying mm. on mm. Elizabeth trying to, you know, get information out of her. Now she's a lot more compelling. She's this pioneering black woman who has put her law degree on hold to look after her two kids while her husband's in the military. She gets involved in like nascent civil rights movements in the area and it becomes like she's this duality, this dual character uh, against uh, Elizabeth Zott where Zott is about, you know, how to forward the future, how to move momentum. Um, Sloan is about history, your place in history, what will happen with women in history. So they're both pioneers, both pioneering women ways. of the time in completely different ways and they do complement each other and it's a great balance between the two. Uh, I also, my skin crawled slightly, I must admit, <laughs> when I uh, read about the possibility of magic realism in the, the novel. There is, um, yes. This is a, p- 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 no, I know it's a rom-com, <laughs> it's at one level there's a bit of that going on, but this is a book about, uh, this is a, f- a series about science, mm. lessons in chemistry. Yes. Does the magic realism make its way in there? It does. There is a dog uh, her dog and, and you know fans of the book will be well aware of this called 6.30 and he's named after the error of the morning where he wakes Elizabeth up and his presence in the book he's very beloved he's a narrator part of the a narrator of the book and he mm. also sticks his nose into the TV show and and he's voiced by BJ Novak the comedian and to be honest it's I found it charming and I know a lot of people might go it's a step too far it's too twee but at the time he kind of explains the emotions okay. that Elizabeth can't on Can I, Should I stick with it? I, for me, it didn't have it didn't have enough to truly substantially chew over. I thought it was a little bit obvious. There's not a lot of nuance or ambiguity there when it comes to the male characters and the patriarchy. Men are either very bad or they're unimpeachable. That aside, I think it's very enjoyable autumn fair for people, and they yeah, will and settle Larson down is, and watch it. And certainly on the basis of episode one, she's she's great. very good. Yeah. yeah. All right, that's Jed and Gannon speaking to us about lessons in chemistry. It's on Apple Plus from Friday, October the thirteenth. Two episodes this week, and then. One each week until they get to number eight. Rob Doyle is an Irish author living in Berlin. Last June, he accepted an invitation to speak at a symposium about James Joyce at the Trieste Joyce School, an annual event in a city in which the writer lived from 1904 to 1920. James Joyce, that is not Rob Doyle. Despite being less than enthusiastic about the Joyce industry or even reading the work of the great man himself, Rob decided to be part of this symposium. He's written about his experience at the Trieste Joyce School for the new edition of the Dublin Review in the essay in in an essay called The Lightning Rod. I'm delighted to have Rob join us on the line from Berlin. I have to say, Rob, there are laugh out loud moments in this in this essay. Um, yeah. Where do we start? Let us talk first of all about which you point out quite early in the essay the great parallels between your life and James Joyce's life. Yeah, well, he was born in 1882. I was born in 1982. Both of us were one-time English language um, teachers in Italy. Uh, he's somewhat more famous than I am <laughs> at the moment, but uh, we'll we'll see what we can do about that in the in the years to come. You know, 
Yeah, okay. So as as writers, clearly you're mirror images of each other from from, from that paragraph of of the of the of the essay of the essay. But one of the things that, that becomes quite clear and brave of you to to stand up and say, even around your reading of Joyce, no doubt that you admire him, but I'm not sure if you're an enthusiastic reader of the great man. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I've read most of his work. I haven't read Finnegan's Wake, which is his famously uh, obscure, difficult, very long, final kind of avant-garde extremist novel, which uh, I would say few people even in Ireland have read from first page to the to the last. But I've read most of the rest of it. And like you say, and like I say in the essay, I certainly admire him. You know, you'd want to be fairly crazy not to respect the achievement. Mm. But when push comes to shove, uh, when push comes to shove, I don't love his work the way I love the work of any other, any number of other authors out there, novelists, you know, be they Irish or international. Um, so it, there was a kind of irony in me mm. being invited to this uh, Joyce Summer School in Trieste as the as the, the the writer in residence because I had kind of even come out in print on previous uh, occasions as being somebody who is a bit cynical towards what I would call the national cult of James Joyce. Yeah. I know I'm going to have people hating me for even <laughs> saying that, but, uh, you know, the whole kind of Ferrari around Bloomsday and all yeah. of that. I, I mean, I, I don't really have anything against it. It's just sometimes as an Irish writer, you hear the guy's name so much and you have his work invoked so much as a kind of sacrosanct entity that you become just a little bit mm. um, sick of hearing about him. And, and so, so me being invited there, uh, like I say, had a certain degree of irony in it. But I've never been one to say no to a free holiday and particularly to such a beautiful northern Italian well, city as I, Trieste. Again, they, I admire your honesty in admitting in admitting that uh, as well. I suppose part of the problem was a character in a short story and far be it from any interviewer to suggest that everything that an author would write is autobiographical and everything that a character in a story that a writer writes is the same as what the writer himself writes. But there was one particular story, wasn't there, where there was uh, a character there, a, a writer, I believe, in fact, who yes. wasn't that fond of Joyce. Yes, that's right. In my second book, which was a collection of short stories titled This is the Ritual, the very first story was uh, one called John Paul Finnegan, Paltry Realist, which after the book was published, achieved a certain notoriety and it was translated into many languages and all of that. But the, 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 it's kind of a comical, uh, a hyperbolic, ranty kind of story about a guy called Rob Doyle, you know, like me, who on the uh, on the ferry, the Ulysses, on the way back to Dublin from Holyhead, meets uh, another writer who's a kind of acerbic, embittered, failed writer who goes on this uh, murderous rant against James Joyce and Joyce scholars and the Joyce industry and Bloomsday and the whole of the Irish nation who worships Joyce and so on. Uh, and it was a good laugh at the time, yeah. even if I never felt it was one of my favourite stories. But because there was so much kind of pungent language yeah. in it against uh, yeah. Joyce scholarship and so on, I kind of hoped that that story w might be uh, 
somewhat forgotten, at least for the time I spent in Trieste. But, but unfortunately, no. it wasn't to be. There was a no. young, there was a, a, a journalist who came to interview you, Elisabetta, I think was her name. And in she That's comes right. from her, her magazine or her paper, Il Piccolo. And she immediately confronts you with that. She asks you all these questions. Then, <laughs> then it comes to the yeah. moment when you're giving your address at the symposium. As she is introducing you and she says, please welcome the Irish writer who has made a holy, holy mockery of Joyce scholars and whose scathing broadsides against the Joyce industry truly take no prisoners. And you yeah, have to so walk was, up on stage. Oh, yeah. Into the lion's den. I felt I was outed radically. You know, the, the story <laughs> she wrote about me came out in the newspaper that very day. Uh, it was called uh, something like. Yeah, the transgressions of a Joycean or something like that. And it kind of outed me as a, a supposed enemy of Joyce scholars. And mm. so here I was walking into a massive auditorium full of them. Uh, I felt like I was public enemy number one. But I but I quickly brought them around yeah. to, you know, brought them around to my side. I gave a bit of a talk about how actually, you know, word of my anti-Joycean iconoclasm has been somewhat exaggerated. <laughs> and in fact, you know, I, I admire it. I admire it. Ulysses mm. in particular, as much as the next man, as much as the next reader. And um, furthermore, you know, I have all sorts of uh, personal, as everybody in Dublin yeah. does, really, all sorts of personal connections and links to to Joyce and, again, in particular to Ulysses. So yeah. I think uh, I was getting some very hostile glares at the beginning of that talk. But by the end of it, you know, they were kind of laughing and smiling. And I, I yeah. felt like I'd avoided the gallows for another day. Yeah, you, you certainly won the audience over. And I think, <laughs> am I right in saying that possibly, uh, if, I, if I'm not putting words into your mouth, um, <laughs> that did you feel different about Joycean's at the end of this? Now, there is another event at, in the essay that I don't want to go into because I think it's wonderful in the reading about a man who asks you a question, which is just so wonderful. It should, it should be read rather than discussed, I think. But do you feel, did you feel differently about the Joycean's, about Joycean's rather, at the end? Well, uh, I will say this, and I guess this comes out in the essay, even if I don't say it in so many words, but I had an absolutely wonderful time there. And and I should say, actually, um, although I'm, I'm not paid or sponsored to say it or anything, but I can thoroughly recommend the Joyce, the James Joyce Summer School <laughs> in Trieste, which is an annual yeah. event to anybody with even the faintest interest in Joyce, because it was a it was you an intellectual feast. Yeah, one thing it was kind of like it was a it was an academic's version of a of a party of a, a week long nightclub or something oh. like that. It was just it was great fun. All right, but just before you go, Rob, you might also want to recommend to people the gig you're doing on Saturday, the twenty first of October. That's right. I'm doing an event um, in I think it's Brooks Hotel, the cinema in Brooks Hotel, which I've never never been to, but it's hosted by the writer Paul McVeigh and uh, the writers June Caldwell. And Mia Gallagher, very hmm. interesting, very uh, very smart, yeah. opinionated writers will be there too. So uh, we'll be talking about literary Dublin and God knows what we'll be talking about, but uh, we, we will be. So yeah. And I, and I presume you'll be wearing your boater and eating um, uh, devil's kidneys <laughs> and black pudding at the time. Absolutely. T- <laughs> Listen, Rob, great to, great to speak with you. Uh, congrats on that. Good luck with the gig. And I have to say the essay, I, I found it highly entertaining and moving towards the end as well as uh, people should go and read it to find out why. Rob Doyle there and Rod's essay, The Lightning Rod, is in the current issue of the Dublin Review. You'll find further details on the literary event on uh, that he to- talked about there on Writing Dublin Now. Uh, look up Writers Talks at Brooks on Eventbrite.ie. That's the easiest way to get it. Writers Talks at Brooks on Eventbrite.ie. That's